Now, friends, as we come to the ninth chapter of Hebrews, we come to a new division, and we're dealing with that which is actually the meat of the Word. This is not milk that we're talking about now. Some little ceremony down here, or some little method, or some little program. We're talking now in this ninth chapter actually about worship. And the subject is, the first ten verses, a new sanctuary better than the old. And then from verse 11 into the tenth chapter, we have a superior sacrifice. Now, we have given to us here two ministries that are in contrast. One was the Levitical service, the ministry in an earthly tabernacle down here. Then the sanctuary in which the Lord Jesus serves and what actually is real worship today. Now, we are actually looking at a new sanctuary that's better than the old. We're talking about the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ now. He's after the order of Melchizedek, and it's put in contrast to the Aaronic priesthood that served in an earthly sanctuary. And this sanctuary on earth is merely a type of one that is in heaven, and that's where the Lord Jesus is serving today. And very frankly, that's a very important thing for us to have before us. Now, it makes for better worship. You see, actually, what you had back in the Old Testament and under the Old Testament ritual, and I would like to emphasize this, a great many people approach the law today from the Ten Commandments. Actually, this epistle doesn't approach it from that direction. It approaches it from that place of worship and the priesthood they had in that day. And that had to do with the settling of sin. And the thing that he's saying is this, that actually all of this never really settled the sin question. As he's going to say, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Now, I want you to notice something that is very important, and I'll read the first verse. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Now, I'd like to call your attention to an improvement that can be made upon the words that are used here. Actually, the word for service speaks of ordinances of divine service. I think it could better be translated divine worship. And then a worldly sanctuary doesn't mean worldly as we think of it, but a sanctuary of this world. That is, it was made of materials of this world down here. It was made so long and so wide and so high. And there was a ritual that they went through in this sanctuary down here. In that sense, it was of the world. Now, it will be contrasted with a sanctuary that is in heaven. And there's some very important things we want to say right here. But let me read verse 2. For there was a tabernacle made. Now, we're not taken back to the temple. 
And there's no reference made to Herod's temple for the illustration, although there's been a reference made to it, that there were still priests serving at the altar in the temple. Actually, when the type is given, the writer here goes back of the temple, any one of them that was built, and the third one was in existence at that time. He goes back to that very simple structure that God gave to Moses in the wilderness. There was a tabernacle made, and it was made of the things of this world. The first wherein was the lampstand and the table and the showbread, which is called a sanctuary. That is, it was the holy place. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, this is a very important passage of Scripture for us to see. To begin with, he's going to make a contrast now between this tabernacle that, as we've already seen, was made after the tabernacle in heaven. God showed Moses a pattern, and Moses followed that pattern, and that was after the one in heaven. But always at best, this was a tabernacle of this world, and it was much inferior, as we shall see in many different ways, to the tabernacle which is in heaven. And it was the place, however, of worship. Now, we find again this word worship used and translated a little differently in verse 6. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the worship, and our translation says, service of God. And the little word always, they went always, it meant they went continually. They never finish the job. If they go today, they'll be going tomorrow. And if they go tomorrow, they'll be going the next day, and on and on and on. And I'm of the opinion that it became very monotonous over the years for a priest just continually to go through this ritual. Probably one priest would say to another, don't you get tired of doing this? And I'm sure that he would agree to that. It had to be repeated again and again, which meant that it was not satisfactory. That is, one time would not do. But we're going to see now, Christ has entered once into the holy place, and only one time. It's only necessary for him to go just one time. That is very important for us to see now, I'd like to call your attention to something that's very important, and this has to do with real worship. Not just a church service where an order of service is followed, where there may be a ritual that's not very complicated, or it could be a very complicated ritual. But when real worship takes place, that real worship is a worship 
that draws us into the presence of Christ, where we can adore Him. Now, worship actually comes from the same root word, the old Anglo-Saxon word of worth. It is giving to someone that which is worthy. They are worthy to receive adoration and praise. That's worship. And the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy to receive our praise and our adorations. And then service follows from that. Real worship will always lead to service. You remember when the Lord Jesus answered Satan in the wilderness temptation? Here was an answer he gave, and he always quoted Scripture, and it was this. It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. You see, worship, if it's real worship, will lead to service. You don't have to beg and coax and goad people into doing something if they are participating in real worship of Christ, because real worship leads to service. Now, many of us ministers spend a great deal of time urging people to do something, you know, for God. Urge them to give. Urge them to do visitation. Urge them to teach. Urge them to sing. Urge them to do something. Well, real worship will lead to service, always, if it's real worship. And maybe we just didn't provide real worship. Now, the first thought that's in worship is that of rendering, therefore, homage and adoration and praise in the presence of God to our wonderful Savior. And that worship is a service, and it leads to real service out yonder where the rubber meets the road. That's when we roll up our sleeves and that's when we spit on our hands and we get to work for the Lord. May I say to you, worship is adoration right through this section here. Now, I want to say that real worship is only possible through Jesus Christ. The ritual of the tabernacle actually never got the people into the presence of God. The high priest alone went into the Holy of Holies. Now, I'm going to come back to that tabernacle again, and I'm not promoting books right now, but my book on the tabernacle, God's Portrait of Christ, deals with this thing. And for those of you who participate with us in the program, we'd be delighted to send you a copy of it. I deal particularly with the articles of furniture. Now, the tabernacle proper was just a big gold box, 30 cubits long. That would be about 45 feet. And 10 cubits wide, that would be about 15 feet. And 10 cubits high. And it was in turn divided into two sections. In the holy place, there was, as we're told here, these certain articles. For instance, there was the table of showbread the golden lampstand, and then there was in the background the golden altar, the altar of incense, and it speaks of prayer. No sacrifice was ever made there. Now, in the Holy of Holies, where the high priest went, 
and it was separated by a veil, why there were two articles of furniture. There was the ark. It was just a box made out of gopher wood overlaid inside and outside with gold. On top of it was a very highly ornamented top called the mercy seat. Cherubim beams were made there. They looked down upon the top of the box, and that's where the blood was placed. That's what made it a mercy seat, because the Lord had said to them in Leviticus, without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Now, we find here that there's been a little change made. We're told that inside the Holy of Holies, there is this censer, as it is called here, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold. Now, why does he move it on the inside? Well, to begin with, the veil has already been removed. The veil is down today. That veil speaks of Christ, and it speaks in particular of the life of Christ, made of fine twine, Egyptian byssus linen, with the cherubims woven into it. And it speaks actually the humanity of the Lord Jesus. Now, when he died on the cross, he gave his life on the cross his human life, that veil was rent in twain. And the way to God now is wide open, because he's made a way. He says, "...no man cometh to the Father but by me." And the veil has been rent in twain, and we can come right in to God's presence today. But what happened to that golden censer, the golden altar? Well, it's moved inside. Didn't Aaron, on the great day of atonement, didn't he, with the blood, come by that altar? Didn't he take a censer and fill it with coals and then put incense and went inside? In other words, he is transferring, as it were. He's transferring the altar of incense to the inside at that particular time. But, of course, he picked up that censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar and had sweet incense on it, he brought it back out. Here you have the transferring of it into the Holy of Holies, but he brought it out, and he's going to do it again next year. We got a great high priest. He's our great intercessor, always at the golden altar there making intercession for you, and his prayers are heard, by the way. Therefore, it's on the inside, but it's also on the outside. You and I can come through him by prayer. And that's what Paul meant, that being justified by faith, we not only have peace with God, but we have access to God. And that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is something that is quite interesting. Now he mentions here also what was in that ark. He tells us that, there was in it the golden pot that had manna. That speaks of the present ministry of Christ and feeding those that is own. He feeds them with his word. He's the bread of life. And you get the bread at the bakery, which is the Bible. The Bible is God's bakery. And if you want bread, that's where you're going to go for it. And Aaron's rod that budded, that speaks of the death and resurrection of Christ because that was a dead rod, and life came in it, and the tables of the covenant. And that meant the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled all the law. 
Now we have this presented to us here as real worship. This is real worship, if you please, that he's presenting to us at this time. And I want you to note that as we move down here now. Verse 7, But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. What he's telling us about now is the great day of atonement. In one sense, that was the high day, the Yom Kippur, the high day in the life of that nation. That is the day that the great high priest went in for the nation and went in, and on the basis of that, the nation was accepted for another year. Now, our great high priest has gone in to the Holy of Holies into the presence of God itself. He's gone in there and hasn't come out yet. He's going to be there as long as we're in the world. And when he comes out, he's coming out after his own because we are part of him today. We're the body of Christ. And the purpose of all of this is to make real to your heart and my heart the presence of the Lord Jesus. Today, did you start out with him? This is a hurly-burly world that you and I are in today, and it has no time for him as you rushed in on the freeway or wherever you rush to today, and probably some of you at home now. Did he go with you? Was he with you today? That's the purpose of this. And you can worship him. You don't have to go to a church and sing the doxology. However, That is something he's going to urge here, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And you do need to meet with God's people, and there needs to be this concerted corporate worship today. It's very essential, but you can worship him at the end of a cotton row or corn row. You can worship him on the freeway. You can worship him in the office. You can worship him in the classroom. Friends, you can worship him anywhere. I don't care where you are. You can worship him. And this is something that always so needed today, that you and I pour out our hearts in adoration and praise unto his holy name. Now, the high priest has gone in for us today. And you can see how superior it is to this, where he went in just one day, and he only stayed. He hurried. In fact, he had a chain around his foot, because if he had done anything wrong, he would have been struck dead, and they'd had to pull him out and get a new high priest. But ours has gone in, and that is the wonder and glory of it all, that he's been able to go into the very presence of God for you and me today. Someone has made a little different translation here of Hebrews 9:24, and I'm going to turn to that For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us. Moses said to God, let me see your face. God says, you can't do it. I've got a high priest that's gone into the very presence of God. Now, we don't worship by going through ritual today, friends. 
Christians. We don't worship by burning candles or burning incense or having a nice little altar fixed up today. Now, Protestantism has sure gone over to this. I have a very fine friend. I hold meetings for him, and he's as sound as a dollar. But he told me last time as I asked him, I said, why in the world you got the cross down there on the table of the Lord's Supper? Oh, he says, not only that, did you notice the candles? Well, I hadn't noticed those, but he had a candle at each end of the table. He says, that's to help the people with their worship. My friend, if you need that kind of help, you're not worshiping him. The Lord Jesus Christ said to that woman at the well, you remember, she said, now, where shall we worship God? Here? In this mountain, and we have a ritual, are over Jerusalem where we burn candles and incense. The Lord Jesus says, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers are going to worship God. How? In spirit and in truth. And I got another friend. He's very much tied up in Jewish evangelism, which is very good. But he's got a candelabra in his church. He has a menorah, has seven candles on it. And I like to kid him because I know him real well. I said, my, you put in a new heating system here in your church. Oh, he was offended. He says, my, no. He says, this is to keep our minds centered on the fact that we have an obligation, Jewish people. I said, my friend, if you need that sort of thing, <laughs> then you're not really worshiping God today. Oh, I long for that, not only for you, but for myself, that I can get into his presence, and I can smell the sweet incense of his presence, not with my nose, but with my heart and with my soul and my mind. May I be conscious of the sweetness of his presence, and may I walk in the light of his word, and may there be reality today in my life. Oh, I crave it for myself, friends, and I covet it for you today, that you and I might know what reality is. Oh, if we just quit drinking milk and put aside that little nipple on the bottle that we've got. I've got several letters here before me. I've got such wonderful letters. But one dear lady, oh, she finds fault with the fact that we don't write her a personal letter with every gift she sends in. She doesn't realize that we're cut down to the bone here in staff. We cut down our overhead as much as we can. We are trying to get out the Word of God. Oh, if I could just get that over. But she wants the bottle with a nipple on it and wants to be burped every now and then. Oh, how we need today to get into the presence of the living Christ. He's our great high priest. He's ministering yonder at a better tabernacle than here on this earth. And the children of Israel worship God around that tabernacle. We can worship the living Christ today. May there be reality today in our worship. Notice, the Holy Spirit, this signified that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. In other words, all of this was a picture and type that the way into the very presence of God hadn't been opened, and actually right into the very face of God. Verse 9, 
which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices and could not make him that did the service perfect or make the worshiper perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Now, will you notice the way to God in the tabernacle was actually blocked by the three entrances and compartments. In other words, the people could only come out there to that outer entrance and bring their sacrifice. And then a priest would take their offering. If it was a little lamb, they'd put their hand on it, and it was slain and offered. And then this individual went out. And then, as far as the holy place was concerned, only the priests went there. And then into the Holy of Holies, again, the priests didn't even go there, let alone the people. Only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. It was a temporary, it was a makeshift arrangement. You see, the service of ritual and ordinances was given for just a brief time. Now Christ can bring us to God, but only he can bring us there, you see. No man cometh to the Father, he said, but by me. Now this is real worship, and real worship will lead to service for him. And one of the problems today is, and every minister has to labor with this problem, my heart goes out to many men today in the ministry that are trying to get their people into the presence of God. Well, it's difficult. But if you once get there, then there'll be no problem about serving. You'll serve God. And we've discovered that. I have over the years. If I can just get somebody into the presence of God to worship, I don't have to worry about them working for God. They'll take care of that. Worship leads to working for God. Now, worship is something that today... The liberal condemns. Years ago, the late Dr. Harry Emerson Fosdick said that the world tried in two ways to get rid of Jesus. One was by crucifying him, and the other by worshiping him. If you worship him, you're no better than those who crucified him. May I say to you, to me, that's blasphemy. We approach a holy God today on the basis of a crucified Savior, and he alone can let us worship. And that's the reason that you find that Paul in Ephesians says to them, "...be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit." And then what's the first thing that he talks about? Well, worship, speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns, making melody in your heart. Well, my friend, the greatest thrill in the world for a child of God is to be filled with the Spirit of God and to have the Spirit of God take the things of Christ and make them real to us. It brings joy to our heart. And I see people, and did for years, come out of the church, a very serious look on their face, worried look on their face. The minute I saw that, I knew I failed. Because, friends, if you've been in the presence of God to worship, you've got joy in your heart. You got a song, maybe it's not on your lips. Mine's never been able to get there yet, but it's sure been down in my heart. 
Been down there a long time, and I've never been able to get it out, but it's there. May I say to you, it's wonderful today to worship Him. Now, I'd like to recapitulate here for just a moment, because there's some things here that are very important. We've said them all, but I want to organize them a little. And I'm turning to some very fine notes that are put out by a very good friend of mine, Dr. Warren Worsby. I'm going to share his notes at this point because he has organized these ten verses. He says here that the sanctuary here on earth was inferior to the one in heaven. And he mentions several things that we've already mentioned, but this will get them organized. First of all, it was on earth. And we've seen it was a worldly sanctuary. That is, it was made of earthly things, material things. It was put up on this earth down here. And then second, it was but a shadow of things to come. It never was the reality. So many of us have got things mixed up. We go back and study about the tabernacle. I've taught it for years, and I know that we get centered in that earthly tabernacle. Well, at best, it's just a shadow. It's a picture of that which is real, the one that's in heaven. And then the third thing, it was inaccessible to the people. And as we've seen, you just couldn't get in there. I mean, you couldn't go rushing into the presence of God. If you'd been an Israelite in that day, you'd have been stopped at that first entrance, and you'd have needed a sacrifice there, but you wouldn't have gone anywhere the priests serve for you. But today, we are a priesthood of believers, and each one of us have access to God. That's one of the great privileges we have because Christ has rent the veil in twain, and he's gone into the presence of God, into the face of God. He's right there, friends, and he's there for us today. But they didn't have that privilege in the old. And then it was temporary. But this one, I tell you, he's going to keep the way open for eternity. And I have a notion that Vernon McGee sure going to need somebody to keep it open for him throughout eternity. It was temporary. And then it was ineffective to change the hearts of people. Now, actually, that is the thing that I've emphasized above everything else. That had nothing in the world to do with changing people's lives. Now, today, you can come to Christ... He can change your life, and today He alone can enable you to worship God in spirit and in truth and make this thing a reality. Many folk today, they just play church. Like, you know, when I was a kid, we used to play house, spend hours playing house. I know a lot of Christians, they've grown up, got gray hair, and they're playing church today. A lot of fun, you know. They go to committee meetings, and they're on the board, and some sing in the choir, and some teach a Sunday school class, and they're just busy as termites, and just about as effective as termites, too. But there they are, and they just think that they're serving God. My friend, you never serve Him until you worshiped Him. How important this is, and we need to see that. Now, I'm going to continue to move on down now in this chapter, because what we've gone over is very, very important. Now we've come to the superior sacrifice. And listen to him in verse 11. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come. Good things, friend. Good things. Oh, the good things. 
that come through him by a greater and more perfect, more complete tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, not something that man built down here, though he be like Bezalel, who did all the artistic work, given a special feeling of the Spirit of God to do it, but it's still a material thing, you see. And it was that good things to come. And actually what it really means is that have come to pass. Oh, how wonderful it is. These things have come to pass for us. And it's a more perfect tabernacle. It's not of this creation. The better tabernacle does not belong to this natural creation as to materials are builders. And let me say this very kindly. All of this business today of trying to sweeten up the worship down here about having pictures and stained glass windows and candles and crosses, all of that type of thing today, it ministers to the flesh. It's fleshy. It ministers to the physical side. It doesn't minister to that which is spiritual at all, friends. And today, we need to recognize there's a real tabernacle in heaven. There's a real high priest there. And this is a spiritual worship today. And you can worship him anywhere. And it's wonderful that in a church, when people can come together and really worship God. Sometimes we take off in a worship service, and it's wonderful. And I'm sure many of you have been in a service like that. Now he goes on to make it clear. He says here, verse 12, "...neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us." Now, this verse, and I didn't refer to it before. I wanted to wait till I got to it because I expected somebody to say, well, do you have a verse to prove your belief that Christ took his literal blood in heaven? If he's not talking about that here, I want to know what he's talking about. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, that's pretty literal blood, but by his own blood, and he shed that on the cross. He entered in. Now, he entered in how? by his own blood, in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. May I say to you, I don't want to labor a point, but it seems to me that it's very important. His is a superior sacrifice, and it is a sacrifice and the only one that's worthy of the genuine tabernacle. Now, the question, I think, still remains, did Christ present his own blood there? I think he did. I believe that. Now, you will note in your Bible that the little phrase, for us, is in italics. That means that it's not in the original, and it means it was put in to smooth out the translation, which is all right. And it is for us. But the emphasis is not there. The emphasis is upon a contrast that you have here. He entered once into the holy place. By having entered once, he obtained eternal redemption. Now, you want to turn that around? The priests, they went in continually, and they got a temporary sort of thing. They never got eternal redemption. So that the blood of bulls and goats 
just couldn't take away sin. It covered it. It was an atonement. And it pointed to the time that Christ came. And we'll see that as we move on down in this particular section here. Now, let me move on here. Verse 13 I'm reading now of chapter 9 of Hebrews. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifying to the purifying of the flesh. Now, we come to the ordinance of the red heifer, and that's the sacrifice that is used here. Now, when we were in the book of Numbers, I went over this. But I think we better come back to it and let me read it again. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve or to worship the living God? Now, they went through a ritual back in the Old Testament, and that ritual, as we've seen, it became monotonous. And frankly, I think worship can become very monotonous in our churches. Don't think there's any question about that. And some people even think we ought to change our theme song. They're tired of listening to it. Well, may I say to you, that's our little ritual, I guess. That's the way we come on the air. And any type of a ritual that you just keep repeating it has a certain amount of monotony in it. Now, the blood of goats and calves never could take away sin, but it got that which was temporary. That is, it pointed to the one who was going to come and pay for the sins of the world, but it never got eternal redemption. Now, Christ didn't go in several times. Once he went in, and it's eternal redemption. It now puts the authority and the importance upon the sacrifice of Christ. And it reminds us, and this will occur again and again here, that the life of Christ never saved anyone. You can follow his teachings and think that you're saved, but my friend, that never saved anyone. It's the death of Christ. It's his redemption that saves. Now he says the blood of bulls and goats. That speaks of his death for our sins. But it says now the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, that sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. But it never did, as he says here in verse 11, it's the blood of Christ that takes care of the conscience from dead works to serve or to worship the living God. Now, this is very important to see. If you go back to the 19th chapter of Numbers, and we're not going to turn back there and read it, but I would like for you to notice that here the heifer has a particular and peculiar meaning. And here the female is used. Well, we're told in 1 Peter 3, 7 that the female is the weaker vessel. Instead of a bullock here, our defilement actually comes through our weakness, you see. We're weak. Now, he took our place. He was crucified through weakness. He couldn't carry the cross. He came down and knew 
physically, in the flesh, your weakness and my weakness. Now, we are told back in the 19th chapter that it was a red heifer and must be without spot. The red, I think, speaks of the fact that Christ became sin for us, not in some academic way, but actually became sin for us. And you say, well, how do you know that red is the color of sin? Well, you remember Isaiah said in Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, that is red, though they be scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So it must be a red heifer, speaking of the fact that he became sin for us. Now, the animal must also be without blemish. It certainly couldn't represent him unless it was, and he was wholly harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners. Now, the animal must be also one that a yoke had never been put upon it. Although he was made sin for us, he was never under the bondage of sin at all. Not only the place that this is to take place, is to lead the animal without the camp. And this was a picture of the fact that before the high priest, the animal was to be slain. And I think you have here a picture of our Lord Jesus. He is both the offering and the one he offered himself. And you have that depicted here in the high priest, slain before him. And the blood of the offering was to be sprinkled by the high priest before the tabernacle seven times. Now, I hear people say that seven in Scripture is the number of perfection, only indirectly. The primary meaning is completeness, and it speaks of the fact that it's a finished transaction and that that one sacrifice takes care of the sin of a believer. And that's Father carried out because the carcass of the heifer was to be burned in the high priest's sight again. You see that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and he freely gave himself. But probably we've never thought of the sorrow there was in heaven the day that Jesus died. Now, we're not through with it. We're told back in the 19th of Numbers that there was to be taken cedar wood and hyssop, and that was to be put with the sacrifice. Now, to me, I think this is rather suggestive. You remember the historian, the one who wrote First Kings in 433, said that Solomon spoke of trees from the cedar tree that's in Lebanon, even unto hyssop that springeth out of the wall. Well, I would say that he ran the gamut of trees, and plant life. So he was a dendrologist, and he covered the entire field. This is what I think Isaac Watts called the whole realm of nature. Now, I believe that this speaks of the fact that he not only redeemed you and me, but you and I live in a world that's been cursed by sin. And actually, he has redeemed this world, you see. This world is now groaning and travailing in pain, but it's to be delivered. It's to be redeemed someday. Sin is to be removed. And we're told here a little later 
that even heaven itself had to be cleansed. Somebody says, my gracious, is it dirty in heaven? Yes, that's where sin originated, by the way. We're told that that's when Lucifer led the rebellion. And so that his sacrifice was quite adequate. It was complete. It was a finished transaction, you see. And it covers all of God's creation that's been touched by sin. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that was an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Now, the ashes of this heifer were to be taken and kept up and then mixed with water. And I think that is with the Word of God. It speaks of the Word of God. And that it would reveal sin in the life of the believer. So that what we have here is something I think rather important, that the sacrifice of Christ looked forward to your redemption and my redemption. It looked back to the sins in the Old Testament, and they were saved. Abraham was saved by faith. How? He brought a lamb. Was that adequate? No. It pointed to Christ, so that this looks forward and it looks back. And he speaks here something about purge your conscience. My friend, you and I have not really arrived until we enter into this marvelous sacrifice of Christ, recognizing his authority, that he has forgiven us our sins, and that we rest in him, we believe him, and we can pill our head at night knowing that our sins have been forgiven. You see, it's for a conscience. It is a conscience that's been made alert by the Word of God, but we can rest in the finished salvation. How many people today pillow their head at night, recognizing their sins are entirely, totally, fully forgiven, and that they are right with God, because He made it right, you see, and they rest in that. I heard the story of the man had a little boy, and the little boy did something wrong, and went to his father and asked him to forgive him, and the father told him he would after he said, because you come and confess it, I'll forgive you. And so the little fellow in a little while came again and asked him to forgive him. Father said, oh, sure. He said, I've already forgiven you. And the little boy kept coming back, and he kept coming back, and he kept coming back. Finally, the father says, son, I'm going to paddle you if you don't quit coming to me. I told you I'd forgive you. Now, how many times do you find believers say, oh, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm not sure I'm saved. My friend, I think that he would say to you, I've already forgiven you. If you've trusted my son, I've forgiven you, and your sins are forgiven. We need to enter into that and rest in that. Now it says something about that he's purged your conscience from dead works. And dead works have to do with works that you do to get saved. Because, you see, we're dead in trespasses and sins. And, friends, all that a dead person can do is dead works. I've never heard of a dead person doing live works. It just can't be done. And anything that you do to get saved, it's a dead work. Now, and we need to emphasize this, Good works are never a cause of salvation, but they are the result of salvation. And therefore, 
to purge your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. But you see, the word is worship. And if you can enter into that, Christ becomes an authority to you, and you believe him, and you worship him. May I say to you, you know what you're going to do next? You're going to work for him. I had this in my Bible, the first Bible I ever owned. My mother gave it to me. It's a Schofield Bible. I do not work my soul to save. That work my Lord has done. But I will work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. How important that is. He's given now to us an eternal salvation. He's the mediator of the new covenant. That's for you and me. Now, I move on down to verse 15 here. And we have something else now. And for this cause, he's the mediator of the New Testament, or the new covenant. So there's a new covenant. There's the old covenant. And this is important, I think, to see. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, I think here that the emphasis is upon the fact he's the mediator of a new covenant. And those that came under the old covenant, the Old Testament saints, they were saved because they were looking forward to his coming when they brought the sacrifices. I do not know how much they knew. And yet the Lord Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And I don't get that from Genesis. I get that from Jesus. And I believe that all of the Old Testament worthies, they look forward to the coming of Christ. And in other words, God saved on credit, to tell the truth. Blood of bulls and goats never took away their sins. They did that by faith. And when Christ came, he died for the sins that were past. That is, not your past sins, although that's true. But when he says that in Romans, he's talking about all the way from Adam, right down to the time he died. Now, since then, you and I come by faith to him. That's very important to see. Now, verse 16, he says here, "...for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament or a will is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth." Now, if you made a will and you're still alive, your will's no good. It doesn't operate till you die. Now, the reference here is to the will that was made by a man who's died. Don't misunderstand me. The life of Christ can never save you. It's the death of Christ that saves you. Now, verse 18, "...whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people... According to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Now, that is a tremendous statement. Blood occurs, by the way, in this particular section here, from verse 18 to 22, six times. And this reveals the place and the power of the blood in the Old Testament ritual that without shedding of blood is no remission. And that's an axiom of the Old Testament. Now, the blood is important in the New Testament. 
There is power in the blood of the Lamb. And we find in Revelation that the victory was won through the blood of the Lamb, not through some individual's ingenuity or physical strength or spiritual strength, for that matter. Now, let's keep on moving down, saying this is the blood of the New Testament, or the testament which God hath enjoined upon you. Verse 21, Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Now, it was necessary, verse 23, that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You never shed bulls and goats' blood in heaven. Now, that would be crude. But the blood of Christ, as we said before, we believe it's there, and we believe it's not crude at all. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands. These are just figures down here. The reality is in heaven. And now to appear in the presence of God, before the face of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the age, not world, and that's obvious here that world hasn't anything to do with what people speak of the end of the world. The Bible does not teach the end of the world. It does teach the end of the age. Hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, he came made under the law. He was under the law, and he appeared at the end of the law age. He appeared then, and he instituted a new one. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. Now, it's not appointed unto all men. Thank God for that. It's appointed unto man once to die. Some are not going to die. I don't know about you. I hear people talk today about, oh, they want to die and get in the presence of the Lord. I don't mind waiting. I told somebody that thought that I, when I had cancer, I probably should die. I said, well, I'll change places with you anytime and stick around. I'm no hurry to die. May I say that these are things that we need to keep before our mind, that he hasn't had to appear often, but once he's appeared, and it's appointed unto men, not all men, and after that's the judgment. So that, my friend, if the death of Christ doesn't save you, there's nothing ahead of you but judgment. Oh, joy, oh, delight, should we go without dying. I hope I can live till he comes. I don't know whether I will. In fact, I'm not at all sure, but I know this I'd like to. No sickness, no sadness, no dread and no crying, caught up through the clouds with the Lord and the glory. When Jesus receives his own, Oh, Lord Jesus, how long, how long? That's still my question. Ere we shout the glad song, Christ returneth, hallelujah, hallelujah, amen, hallelujah, amen. Now he's going to appear the next time apart from sin. My friends, we are told, verse 28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time 
without sin unto salvation. Now, the important thing is, of course, he's going to appear, but that he'll appear the second time not to settle the sin question at all. He's not going to come the next time and walk around the Sea of Galilee and through the streets of Jerusalem to see what man will do with his sacrifice. He's coming in judgment so that today, and we can put it very simply like this, there's just one or two places for your sins, not a third place. Either your sin today is on you, and you have not accepted the sacrifice of Christ, and you're not trusting him. He's no authority to you. Well, there's nothing ahead of you but judgment, friend. Your sin is on you, and you're coming up for judgment. And it's the judgment of the great white throne. Nobody saved that. He's just going to give you a fair chance to show you that he was right all along. And I have news for you. God's always right. And it looks like we're always wrong. So that today, if your sin is on you, there's nothing in the world that can remove it but the death of Christ. Because even when he comes the next time, it's without sin under salvation. He'll complete the salvation. Because, as we said before, salvation's in three tenses. I have been saved. I am being saved, and I shall be saved. Beloved, it doth not appear what we shall be, but we know when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We'll see him as he is. Now, that's going to be a great day. It's going to be a great day for Vernon McGee. So don't you be dissatisfied with me, will you not? God's not through with me. Dear little lady down in Mississippi got up in the testimony meeting under the brush arbor, had on a sunbonnet. And she said, you know, says most Christians ought to have written on their back, this is not the best that the grace of God can do. Well, I'm not sure what the little lady is not only right, but that every Christian ought to have that on them. God, he's not through with us. Thank God for that. And so he's going to appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He's going to deliver us. But my friend, <laughs> he will not come to settle the sin question for anyone that hasn't accepted him. He's coming as the judge. And therefore, that's what he's talking about here.